Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. of Tim Talks Politics. I'm so glad you're here to join us today. And thank you so much for those of you who have sent some kind words of encouragement and support for what's happening here on the podcast and for the conversations I'm seeking to build and encourage out there in the uh, politically interested public. Uh, I want to encourage you uh, to share those words, if you wouldn't mind, with uh, the public at large. If you would leave a review on the podcast, either where, either on Apple Podcasts or Anchor or wherever you're listening to this podcast. It helps me to promote the show, and it also lets uh, a broader public who might not be familiar with me uh, know that this is a voice that they can listen to and learn something from. So if you've learned something from me and would like to pass on to others, that's a great way of sharing it, and I'd really appreciate it. All right, let's dive into today's topic. The last couple of episodes, uh, I focused on some of the big theories that shape our view of international politics. And in addition to providing you with summaries of no less than five theoretical frames that are useful to interpreting foreign relations, especially America's foreign relations, I left off last time with applying rational actor theory to President Trump and his approach to foreign policy. In this episode, I'm going to continue on that line of thought, but we'll be expanding the cast of characters to include the other elements of America's foreign policy infrastructure, groups like the State Department, the Defense Department, and the different individuals who make up the decision-making bodies within those institutions. And then what we're going to do is we're going to apply some of these ideas to uh, a brief discussion of the Trump administration's approach to its relationship with Iran. So big topic. So when it comes to Iran, just who is calling the shots? That's kind of what we're going to be looking at here. See what I did there? If you follow the news cycle, it seems like we've been on the cusp of war with Iran ever since Donald Trump followed up on his election promise to withdraw from the JCPOA, the agreement that was signed between Barack Obama and the leaders of Iran ostensibly to limit Iran's uranium enrichment and slow down their production of a nuclear weapon. Uh, Trump's approach has been to withdraw from that uh, agreement and slam down sanctions on Iran in something of a maximum pressure 2.0 approach to bring the Iranians back to the negotiation table. Uh, the big difference between Trump's approach to Iran and his approach to North Korea, which seemed to get North Korea to the negotiating table, is that there was kind of already a pre-existing agreement on the table uh, that Trump kind of shredded and then uh, proceeded to engage as if it had never been on the table in the first place. Of course, obviously, for the leaders of Iran, this is deeply problematic. Uh, they're not North Korea. They did not have nothing uh, in terms of d a diplomatic context with the United States uh, in terms to work with in terms of policies and agreements. And so it's uh, been something of a non-starter that America has unilaterally withdrawn from the JCPOA. And since that initial step last year of withdrawing from the agreement, Trump uh, has more or less pursued his maximum pressure campaign uh, on Iran fairly consistently. But that took a really ugly twist this last summer through an escalating sequence of sabotage by Iran and or its agents in Yemen, the Houthi rebels. And it really depends on who you ask. Uh, but these attacks have been happening um, on oil shipping in the Persian Gulf. That sequence of events seemed to escalate a lot farther 
with an aerial attack by drones and missiles. And again, it depends on who you ask, how many were involved, and what kind of weapons and payloads and everything. But it was an aerial attack by drones and or missiles, multiple drones and or missiles, on a Saudi oil facility in September. Uh, Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen claimed responsibility for the attack, but Saudi Arabia and its American ally just aren't buying it. Uh, within about, I'd say, 24 to 48 hours of the attack, uh, Saudi intelligence pretty quickly pointed the finger at Iran, and uh, America pretty quickly followed suit. So in their minds, the Trump administration and the government in Riyadh uh, believe that the ultimate perpetrator is Iran, who for their part, vehemently denied any hand in the attack, except, you know, maybe manufacturing the weapon systems that delivered and detonated the explosives that took 6% of the world oil supply offline in a matter of moments. So, I mean, what's not to brag about there, right? So, um, all that to say, countering Iran in the Middle East is seen as an American foreign policy objective, and it's widely accepted as an American foreign policy objective. In fact, you could probably say it's more or less pretty uh, bipartisan. And in addition to the less than cold regional power struggle between Saudi Arabia and Iran for dominance in the Middle East, uh, America's confrontation with Iran also plays a shaping role on the politics of that region. Where the policy debate engages, however, is just how to go about encountering Iran and uh, pushing them back where necessary. What is the ultimate objective in America's relationship with Iran? And to what degree is America's action or inaction impacting the activities of our allies, particularly Saudi Arabia and another longtime adversary of Iran, Israel? So at the policy level, this raises a bunch of different questions. Just what should the Trump administration's approach be to counter Iran? And then once that policy approach is settled on, how will it be implemented and by whom? These questions drive us to assess the foreign policy of the United States at a level of institutions and individuals. Some foreign policy analysts refer to these lenses through which foreign policy analysis is done, respectively as homo bureaucraticus and homo psychologicus. These frames for analyzing foreign policy refer to uh, essentially policymakers as individuals, that's homo psychologicus, or as creatures of institutions, uh, and as the representatives of institutions, uh, that's homo bureaucraticus. These frames of analysis uh, seek to assess the level of influence that bureaucratic politics and individuals exert on a foreign policy decision. That's all background, so set the context for America's current current relationship with Iran, which is probably much more than rocky, and uh, provide you with some of the technical jargon for uh, the discussion going forward. So this is where having a balanced information diet is really important. Uh, if you recall from episode three, I noted that in a 24-hour news cycle, uh, we tend to focus on the immediate elements of politics and you know the entertaining elements of politics. This is why you know. CNN and Fox News and MSNBC can stay on the air for 24 hours because they dominantly focus on the personalities involved. So they can kind of approach politics as kind of a reality TV show. And many analyses of America's conflicts with Iran over the last week or two and uh, America's response to the most recent provocations have been focused on 
these key individuals making decisions or influencing decision makers. So a lot of news coverage has been spent on focusing on kind of like the person and relationships of Donald Trump with his now former national security advisor, John Bolton, with his secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, and that guy in the Defense Department that since John Mass, uh, since General Mass left, no one seems to uh, know who's in charge over there. So um, all that to say, a lot of the news coverage in a 24-hour news cycle pretty much focuses on the people in the room. You know, the guys calling the shots or the guys who are assumed to be calling the shots. Uh, this framework makes for dramatic narrative. It certainly uh, takes into account that the experience and personalities of the individuals involved influence decision-making and policies that are adopted. It certainly forms the preferences that we talked about in the last episode on rational actor theory. But in the full analysis of America's response to Iran and our ongoing diplomacy with them, to just focus on the personality of an individual has some shortcomings. So let's take, for example, focusing on the personality of Donald Trump. If we were to have to make assumptions about what America's response to Iran would be based on our assessment of Donald Trump's personality, we might conclude that given his combative posturing, his generally acknowledged narcissism, and his strongly transactional approach to international relations, among other things, it might be easy to see how an event like an aerial attack with drones on a close American ally would be cause for concern. I mean, wouldn't a personality like Donald Trump want to hit back? I mean, this was a kind of a thumbing the nose at American power and calling into question our commitment to allies. Uh, but the funny thing is, is Trump hasn't, as of my recording this, hit back. And he didn't even hit back a few weeks ago when he apparently called off an airstrike in response to the earliest episodes of tanker sabotage. Why was that? Why was an individual who engages in very combative rhetoric apparently so dovish in his response? You know, clearly human personality and character is changeable over time and even in the moment, uh, but perhaps there were other influences at work here. This is where Homo bureaucraticus and its cousin, Homo sociologicus, which looks at group dynamics, fit into analyzing the decision-making process. These models, Homo bureaucraticus and Homo sociologicus, try to account for institutional and group pressures on the individual personality involved in a decision. Homo bureaucraticus posits that institutions are constantly vying for influence in the policymaking process and in the budgetary processes. Homo sociologicus looks at how a group of individuals trying to make a decision around a table can change how each individual at the table presents their ideas or whether they even say anything uh, in the moment of the decision being made. So let's take those one at a time. In the foreign policy realm in the United States, uh, Homo bureaucraticus would be looking at the bureaucratic relationships, power sharing, and even turf wars for influence that are being fought by organizations like the State Department, the Defense Department, the National Security Agency, and the different agencies that make up the intelligence community, not to mention Congress, the other branch of government that has its own influence on foreign policy. 
Each of these organizations have a particular way of doing things. They have preferred methods and best practices when it comes to addressing different problems. And so they also have different ideas in terms of what should be the priorities uh, for America's national interests and how America should go about pursuing those national interests. So when it comes to Iran, each of these groups would probably advocate for different responses. And we see some evidence of this. Shortly after this aerial attack on a, the Aramco facility in Saudi Arabia, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Saudi Arabia declaring America's support for Saudi Arabia and calling this attack an act of war. Now, this sounds very combative. It sounds like a militarized foreign policy. And someone who's using the homo psychologicus uh, frame of reference would probably point to Mike Pompeo's background as a military officer, a graduate of West Point, uh, etc., to say that, yeah, that totally makes sense that he would use words like that. However, it's interesting to note that since Mike Pompeo calls it an act of war, there hasn't necessarily been a commensurate response at the policy level. I mean, there's been, at least not on record anyway, any uh, shots fired in return uh, from America, no airstrikes, no forces put on the ground in an, in an offensive uh, format. Even if it sounds like militarized rhetoric calling it an act of war, Pompeo is taking a diplomatic action. He flies to a ally to assure the ally and to demonstrate to the world of America's backing and support. Uh, but then a lack of a, of a militarized response, in other words, you know, assuming Iran fired at Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and America together have not fired back. And some uh, analysts have suggested that Pompeo was in Saudi Arabia to coordinate a diplomatic response to Iran. So this would be very much, uh, you could argue from a homo bureaucraticus perspective, the approach of the State Department uh, referring to use diplomacy to achieve a particular policy outcome, in this case, protecting Saudi Arabia or countering Iran or things al along those lines. If you look at the Defense Department, though, in the days and weeks that have followed the attack on the Aramco facility, uh, Saudi Arabia requested and received additional military aid from the Defense Department, They, uh, including uh, some air defense batteries and crews to man them. So yeah, there are additional uh, U.S. military personnel on the ground in Saudi Arabia now or headed over there. Uh, but these are in a defensive capacity, at least officially, and there's been no indication that offensive components are being added. Uh, it's mostly been focused on hardening Saudi Arabia's defenses. So uh, from a homo bureaucraticus perspective, we would say, well, the Defense Department is focused on military solutions. And so when Saudi Arabia has asked for some military solutions, the Defense Department has responded in kind with what they would probably consider to be their best practices at pushing back against this kind of low-level uh, attack. All that to say, if you're using the homo bureaucraticus model to assess uh, foreign policy, you would be looking at how these different groups within America's foreign policy infrastructure work together or even work at cross-purposes uh, to achieve maybe the same objective, in this case, countering Iran. It's kind of interesting because if Mike Pompeo, as Secretary of State, is calling the attack on Saudi Arabia an act of war, uh, it's interesting that the Defense Department, in responding to Saudi Arabia's calls for aid, has given them mostly defensive aid in nature. This is an interesting contrast uh, given the military aid 
that America has slowly stepped up to Ukraine, moving from non-lethal aid to lethal and offensive aid over the course of the last few years in Ukraine's conflict with Russia. So it's not to say that the Defense Department is afraid to give offensive military aid, but in the case of Iran, uh, there was clearly a focus on downplaying the aggression implicit in the attack, which sends an interesting signal from a diplomatic standpoint. Now, in both cases, you can look at how the State Department has responded, the Defense Department has responded, and you could say both are individual responses at the organizational policy level. And you could even, if you're going to just stay there, you could assume that America's foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Iran is confused, it's working at cross-purposes, but it could also be interpreted as being a unified response at the strategic level. The State Department has a role to play, and the Defense Department has a role to play. It's kind of a simplified picture, but if we're considering the difference between, say, the rhetoric of a Trump tweet and the policy level outcome in terms of countering Iran, you can see the different influences of homo bureaucraticus and homo psychologicus on analyzing the foreign policy process. So here's a question to think about, just as I kind of wrap things up. I know that was a really brief flyover of the attacks in Saudi Arabia, Iran's role in them, America's response, etc. But the whole goal of this podcast is to give you some analytical tools to help you think through this, to help you kind of navigate the information you consume. Uh, I'm not trying to replace your source of news. I'm trying to give you some tools to better understand it, to better critique it, to better think through it. So in keeping with that, here's a question to think about. Should different institutions focus on proposing different policy options in a given situation, or should they seek to agree on one particular policy approach? So, for example, should the State Department and the Defense Department or any other foreign policy-related office uh, be working towards the same policy, or should they be keeping the same goal in mind but trying to solve it in different ways? They certainly can do both, but I asked the question in kind of a binary way to kind of get you thinking about first what your own expectations are in terms of how a government should work and conduct its foreign policy, and secondly, to consider the pros and cons of each approach. A decision-making individual, uh, like the president, could possibly craft a unique response when provided with different options aimed at achieving the same goal, but that could become overly complex and prevent timely responses, which something like the attack in Saudi Arabia would require a timely response. So it might be helpful to consider what is gained and what could be lost in a policy-making process where organizations work at odds, hopefully constructively, or work in unison. Again, there's trade-offs as in most of life. So something to think about. Uh, to facilitate your uh, consideration and thinking about these issues. I'll link to a couple of helpful resources. Uh, if you're just not that up on Iran and Saudi Arabia, besides just the fact that one's apparently a good guy and one's apparently a bad guy in American foreign policy thinking, uh, that's okay. You're probably not much farther ahead than most members of Congress. But if you'd like to go beyond your local representative and think more deeply about American foreign policy, I'm not biased at all in this matter. Uh, you can check out the World CIA, uh, the CIA World Factbook. Uh, it's a great resource if you want to go a little deeper into uh, these countries that I just mentioned. Uh, it's a great way to compare countries and to just get a sense of 
what they're about, what they bring to the world table, and all that good stuff. Uh, and then for podcasts, I know I talk a lot about the War on the Rocks podcast. Today, I'm going to recommend that you check out the Intelligence Matters podcast. It is a fantastic podcast. It's produced by CBS. It's hosted by Michael Morell, former acting deputy director of the CIA. Uh, and his interviews on foreign policy topics with uh, practitioners and academics are just wonderful. Gives you great insight into the policy making process, especially at the institutional and individual level that we've just talked about. Uh, and then, uh, just if you want for quick and easy reference, I cited both episodes three and eight of the Tim Talks Politics podcast, so I'll link to those as well in the show notes. Uh, the last word for the day comes from a sign that appeared on President Harry Truman's desk uh, in the late 40s and early 1950s. And it is now a famous sign that's kind of associated as a saying with Truman, although he did not originate the phrase. But that is, the buck stops here. No matter how complex our analysis of foreign policy gets, eventually someone has to take responsibility for making a decision and someone has to take responsibility for implementing that decision. And in the American system of government, that person is usually understood to be the American president. It's helpful to think about where does the buck stop in decision-making in America's foreign policy process? Where does it stop in the Defense Department? Where does it stop in the State Department? Where does it stop in the intelligence community? Ultimately, we know the buck needs to stop with the president because it's the president who's going to sign off on a response. But even within the organizations that contribute policy options for the president to consider, the buck is stopping all along the way and that that impacts on the options the president is presented with. So hopefully that kind of broadens the scope of that simple phrase to help us understand that there is the president who bears ultimate responsibility for the policy outcomes of the United States, but that we live in a representative government, which means the representatives, both presidentially appointed and elected of the people of the United States, each bear in their own way some responsibility for decisions made and policies implemented. I'll see you next time uh, as we continue our discussion on American foreign policy on the Tim Talks Politics podcast. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast.